this morning. We'll be finishing the letter uh, to the Colossians. We've been here for the last few months, um, and we're finishing up uh, this morning. And so I, I think often if we're not um, careful or intentional, Scripture can feel sometimes impersonal. Um, we can feel a little bit disconnected from it. it right? Almost this idea that like that Scripture just kind of fell from the sky, and, and it's there for us. And, but it, how much does it really kind of connect? And in this morning's passage, as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church in Colossae, reminds us that it was written to real people, by real people, in real time, in real situations. Like we see just the kind of the nitty-gritty of life. I mean, we're reminded that it is rooted to something. I mean, and so that we have to understand it's, it's a meaning so that we can understand then what we are to, to take from it, what we see about God from it. And so as Paul wraps up this letter this morning, it would be real easy um, to see it as a conclusion and just kind of be done, um, right, to check out. It'd be easy to get bogged down in a list of names that don't feel super familiar. Um, it would be easy just to kind of say, um, why, why is this significant? And yet we know that all of life um, is, is breathed out for our benefit and for our good. Um, and so I want us to just be reminded of that this morning as we pick up in verse 7 of chapter 4 and finish um, this letter. So Paul writes, Tychus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, he'll tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristocharchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, that you may fulfill, see that you may fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Right, that we that we can remember and, and understand that not quite 2,000 years ago, right, that Tychus stood amongst the church at Colossae, and that he's, he's arrived and people are anxious to hear a word from Paul, and that he stands and reads this letter, right, for the first time that they're hearing it read, and they're, they're engaging and hearing people that they know and love and miss, they're thinking of Paul whom they've not yet met, Right, that these are relationships and connections, that they're engaging with people that they know in situations that they know that they're experiencing um, in real time. And so I want us to initially just look at a few of the individuals here. 
The first is Antiochus. Right? He's, we're told about him in verse 7. He's going to tell you about all my activities. So he's, he's the courier right, who's bringing the letter. But he's more than that. He's not just a mailman who happened to be going on his way from Rome to Colossae. Right? He said he is, he's a faithful minister. He is a brother. We just see him being commended by Paul in the Lord. And so basically, Tychicus is going to get to read the letter to the church. And then I would imagine there was some sort of Q&A. Because right, there's some gaps here. Okay, but how's Paul doing? What do you look like? Is he eating? Right? Like, is there any hope of him getting out? Like, what, what's the situation? Right? Like, the, he gets to then answer questions because he's been there with his, right, with his own eyes. He's able to tell them and engage them in further understanding. And so he's telling them, I want him to read you this letter that has specific teaching, but he will fill in the gap and tell you about all my activities. A beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant of the Lord. He's been sent to encourage them. Right? Probably a name you're not familiar with. We actually see him as well in Acts 20, traveling with Paul. Um, he's mentioned in the, in the conclusions of Ephesians, Titus, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. Like This is a brother who has served well with Paul for a while. Um, and, and so he is being commended. He is not just showing up with a letter. He is going to minister to this body of believers. Um, we, we see a little bit of just how this would have worked, right? That is, Paul has a pastoral or apostolic thought, ministry for the church, that he would send it. When he could go, he would take it himself. When he can't, he would send it. Um, and then he would ask the churches, right, to pass the letters around. Um, Laodicea and Heropolis kind of made a triangle in this valley. They're roughly, you know, 12 miles or so apart, kind of make a triangle. They're in a similar place. They would have known each other. And he's saying, have specific things to say to each of you. Make sure you're trading the letters around um, so that you're hearing the teaching. But it's why the greetings are specific here to those who are part of the church at Colossae. Next, and, and he's connected to verse 8, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your heart. Right, in verse 9, and with him Onesimus. We see the second name, a faithful and beloved brother. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we jumped ahead to this passage. Onesimus um, is, a, is from Colossae. He's a, he's a slave um, who was owned by Philemon. So he's showing up with that letter to this individual, Philemon, to the church that he would have been a part of, that he would have been known. But Paul describes him as a faithful and beloved brother, right? just as he's describing Tychicus. He's one of you. They, not just Tychicus, Onesimus too, he'll tell you about how things are going, right? Like he's, it, what Paul will write to Philemon in that letter is, Onesimus has been useful to me. Like he's not just a dude, like he's been useful. I hope you'll receive him as the brother that he is. And he's, he's coming back to you more than how he left. And we're going we're gonna to come back to Onesimus here in a few minutes. But I'd like to encourage you this week, or even this afternoon, turn over a couple pages and read Philemon. Most likely in your Bible, it's on one page, and it'll take you less than two minutes to read it. Read it in light of this moment that is taking place, that Tychicus is standing before the church, reading this letter, knowing in his bag he also has a letter to give to Philemon, that Onesimus, the former slave, is standing there 
looking at the family that had owned him, that he had served, right? And, and there would have been a level of awkwardness. There may have been some tension. There may have been some, like, we're not sure if this is going to go well or not. And now here is Paul speaking very highly of Onesimus, calling him a brother, telling him that he's useful, that he's going to give you an update on Paul. He continues. And in verses um, 10 and 11, he lists three men. Aristocharchus, a fellow prisoner, he greets you. Right? He, he knew them. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. And he says, these are the men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Aristocharchus, we see in Acts 19, and in Acts 27, he was a part of the riots in Ephesus um, when, when Paul was taken at that point in chapter 19. John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, was a traveling companion predominantly of Peter, right? who, who wrote, we see that in, in 1 Peter 5, he wrote the Gospel of Mark, um, which is basically kind of is based on Peter's experience and his viewpoint of Jesus. Um, and then we see Justice, also known as Jesus, um, who this is the only mention we see in Scripture of him. And it's interesting that he tells them, listen, these three men, right, they've, they've been a comfort to me. Like, what a reminder to us that Paul is not an unfeeling machine who just plants churches, right? Like, I think sometimes we can kind of view Paul and go, man, he just got after it. Like, he did the work. He said, man, i got a thorn in my side. I'm just going to do it. Shipwrecks, beatings, keep me in prison. What are you going to do? You can't hurt me. It's kind of the impression sometimes we get that he was just like macho bravado for Jesus. And here we're reminded like that, like, listen, I'm in prison, and these men have been a grace and a comfort to me. Like I am better, and I'm okay, and your hearts can be encouraged this morning because of these men. And so they send their greetings, some of whom are free, one at least who's in prison with Paul himself. He then continues with three more, beginning in verse 12, Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras is the one who planted this church. He was, he's one of them. He's, he knows them. He loves them. And listen to how he describes him. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in, in Laodicea and Heropolis as well. Right? Paul, again, is just commending this man. Right? It would be difficult for Epaphras to come back and say, here's what I've been doing. Right? Like it would look boastful or prideful. And so Paul takes the time to say, listen, this man who you know, who you love, who has planted this church, who is toiling for you, let me tell you, He's not stopping to pray for you. That you would grow up mature in the Word, rooted and grounded. He is laboring and He is working hard for all three of these communities and all three of these churches. He's commending them and reminding them of their faithful Epaphras. We then see Luke in verse 14, the beloved physician. This is how we know that Luke is a physician. This is the Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. In Acts, 
um, most likely Luke was a, was a slave as well. It would have been beneath a Roman citizen of any sort of means or wealth to have been a physician. Um, we think of a physician as an elevated status in our culture, but there, because they were working with the body, they were working with things that would have been deemed uh, disgusting and gross, that you took an intelligent servant and would make them a doctor who would then serve in that regard. And so it was an elevated role for a servant, but it was most likely someone who had not been free of the totality of their life. So we see him sending a greeting. And then a mention of Demas, who we'll come back to here in a moment. And so we see these names run through. And, and what is Paul doing? Like, how do we keep from just running through it, going, okay, do I recognize any names? Is there anything to be, to be gleaned here? Like, what is Paul doing as he's wrapping this letter up? First and foremost, he is giving them like a visual, known picture of the, of the reconciliation that he's calling them to. A picture of the kingdom of God and the fact that we are supposed to come together as a family across all lines and all barriers that in Christ, all barriers come down and Jesus is sufficient for us. Whether Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, that Jesus is the thing that binds us into the church family together. Remember verse 11 of chapter 3. Talking in the kingdom of God, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. And he had told them in chapter 1, verses 7 and then in verses 10, he says this, Just as you've learned it from Epaphras, he's talking about the gospel, our beloved fellow servant, um, he says in verse 6, The gospel has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and is increasing as it does also among you since the day you've heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So he's reminding them here, one, there is like all the barriers come down. And if you remember from our sermon in chapter 3, he's not saying that we lose our identity. You still are a wife. You're still uh, an employer. You're still a son. You're still these things. But the, the identity in Christ trumps all other identities. You still are male or female. You still are slave or free. But Christ's identity trumps those. And so we are not mostly identified by these other things, but the fact that we belong to Jesus. In verse 6, he had told them the gospel is continuing to bear fruit and work among you. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says this, So I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this has been the call. Like walk in a way that pleases God. Walk in the truth of the gospel. Understand that it's continuing to work itself out in you. It's continuing to transform you. And one of the ways it's doing that is that it's tearing down the boundaries between you, the barriers between you. So we saw it specifically in verse 11 of chapter 3. And now here, he lists... Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus, who is called Justice. Three men who are Jews. He says, listen, they're, they're of the circumcised, and they've brought me comfort. And then he says, they're the only ones right now, the only Jews who are with me who are doing this. And so then he lists three Gentiles, three non-Jews. Epaphras, Luke, 
and Demas. So he's showing them, I'm working with both Jews and non-Jews. Like they're on the team and we're in the gospel is going forth with both of these groups of people. We see that Onesimus and Luke are slaves or former slaves for sure. Some of the rest of them are free men. We have Jews and Gentiles. We have free men and we have slaves working together, advancing the gospel. Paul's calling them all team, team members. He's not in any regard saying, hey, these guys are on one tier and these guys are on another tier. He's commending all of them in a way to the church that would elevate them as faithful servants of God. Paul himself is a Roman citizen who's able to call on that, to get himself out of trouble sometimes and to get a hearing before Caesar. Some of these men had no opportunity for that. So not only do we have Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, he mentions in verse 15, Nympha, right? A woman who's known to them who the church is meeting in her home. Most likely an older widow lady, right? It's why her husband would not have been named here. And she is using her resources and the things that God has blessed her with to allow the church together, together. And so we have men and women, we have slaves and free, we have Jews and non-Jews. All of these are part of the team that God is using here to move the gospel forward. He is showing them a ministry, of a picture of the kingdom and of reconciliation. Not only is it, is it these categories, there's a category here of, there's a combination of well-known people and people you've never heard of and probably won't think of again. Right, so we have Luke, who wrote Acts and Luke. We have Mark, who wrote Mark, right? Those who have Scripture that you know and love. We have Paul, obviously. We have Tychus, who kind of plays a role in the middle as, as being familiar but not super well-known. And then we have guys like Justice. This is it. Like, this is what we know, his name, right? And then he was a teammate of Paul, right? We see some others here um, before you... we started our time in Colossians. Epaphras was probably not a biblical character that you're like, man, really respect that dude. Right? Like, he wasn't a name that crossed your mind. And so we see this combination of both well-known and relatively obscure people. Church, what a reminder to us that whether you're known in this life, in this world, or not, does not dictate whether you are faithful and useful to the King of Kings. Right? Like that we don't have to be world changers to change the world. And there's a narrative that comes around often. We hear this all the time in American Christianity about big picture, world change. Like we throw these words out and we want and expect everyone to do these great and mighty things and to be known and to be famous and to like draw attention to themselves. But what we see in Colossians is the only ones who are doing that are the false teachers. The false teachers are beating their chest and saying, look at my experiences. Look at the things that I've pursued. Look at the, the visions I've had. Look at the things that I've done. And, and what they're saying is, so elevate me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm above you because these things have happened to me. Paul's not the one pulling a card and saying, I'm an apostle, listen up. Paul is being humble. Right, like John, or sorry, John Mark here and Luke, right, aren't, aren't jockeying for further, hey, 
come on, Paul. Give us a little more like time here in this letter. Like, write a, tell people how good we are. Like, that's not what's happening here. Paul will actually write in 1 Thessalonians 4 to the church. He'll say this. Like, aspire to live a quiet and dignified life. Like, that's, that's language that we don't talk about a lot. To, to live a quiet and dignified life, right? Making much of Jesus in the circumstances, in the relationships, in the family, in the community that He has placed you in. Hebrews 11, right? People call it the hall of, of faith often. We have a lot of like Old Testament heroes like that are just like run through real quick about all the great and mighty deeds and the things that, that were done. And in no way are we, are we saying that that is not right. But as Moses is mentioned, and Joseph is mentioned, um, and Gideon, and Samson, and David, and Samuel, all these big characters that we teach about, I want you to pick up in verse 35. Halfway through, the tone of Hebrews 11 changes. And after listing these big known stories, he's, the author of Hebrews says this, and some, meaning Christians, were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep or sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And you don't know their names. We don't know their name. And yet, the author of Hebrews is saying, there are those of whom the world was not worthy, and no fame ever came for them. No approval, no acclaim, and yet God was seeing them. And He was seeing their faithfulness. And He was seeing their, 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 their dependence and their trust in Him. And they will receive their just reward. Right? They will receive from the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. And so can we put our hearts at ease this morning that we don't have to do big, fast things for the glory of God. That get the approval of the culture for the glory of God. That God sees your faithfulness. He sees your obedience. He sees your ministry. Whether anyone else will ever see it. Whether anyone else will ever commend you for it. Whether anyone will ever spill any ink on behalf of what you've done, God sees you. You're saying, good job. Well done, good and faithful mother. You pointed your children to me, and you disciplined them well, and you were patient, and you reflected the image of God in your household. Well done, good and faithful employee, because you worked not for the approval of man, right? but that you worked as unto the Lord in a job where no one ever gave you the approval and the credit that you deserve. I saw it and I will reward it. Would we be reminded this morning that for some, you become right, like, like a Paul or a Luke. Right? Like there is some renown. There is some, some press in this world. But that is not what God sees as faithfulness. We don't have to aspire to that. What we want to aspire to is more of Jesus in, in the everyday circumstances of our life. And we trust God for how He is working and maneuvering in this world and in the next for His glory, for our good. 
So not only have we seen Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women, well-known and obscure, we also see the beauty and the power of reconciliation in the list of names that are mentioned here. In Acts 13, John Mark heads out um, on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. We get to Acts 15 as Paul and Barnabas are preparing for a, an, another journey. We see this discourse and conversation between Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas is a faithful servant. Um, he's also John Mark's cousin. And this is in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So at some point in the first journey, John Mark, he leaves. He's out. We don't know why. Like We don't know, was it out of fear? Was it out of homesickness? Was that of was it out of right like disagreement? Was it that he thought Paul was usurping Barnabas in like fame and acclaim? We don't know why, if it was legitimate or not. But Paul, verse thirty-eight, thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Listen, I, I love that Scripture doesn't whitewash things. You have two like missionaries here who are disagreeing on John Mark as to whether or not, right? And so you can imagine temperaments and personalities here, like that Barnabas, who is the encourager, is like, he's a young dude. He, we don't want to break him. Like he's useful. Let's, let's give him a shot. And Paul's like, no. And whether he thought their lives were at risk or that he couldn't trust him, we see right a sharp disagreement where Paul won't take John Mark. And yet here we are, more than a decade later, and John Mark is being commended by Paul. You will also see him commended at the end of Philemon. And then I want you to hear this. This is from Second Timothy. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He goes on to talk about Tychus and others there. What we see here is reconciliation. That a sharp disagreement had arose, and that Paul was willing to leave Barnabas and John Mark behind go on and do ministry. And now here we are a decade later, and John Mark is being called useful and a teammate and is commended in multiple letters. And, and Paul's saying, I need to see him. I want him to come to me. Like what reconciliation and power that right that a weak start or sin in the, in the forefront did not change the ability of God to reconcile these brothers to not only be okay with each other, but to serve on the same team together for the glory of God. So Paul here, in this, this, this quick and simple conclusion, is showing us a picture of the kingdom and reconciliation. So the church there, they know all the players. They know all the stories. 
And when they see Onesimus on the stage, and they see him talking about Luke, and they see him talking about John Mark, they know the nitty-gritty details and are going, oh my word, look at what the Lord is doing. And this is the call that we're supposed to live as the church in Colossae, in Laodicea, and in Heropolis. And not only does he remind them that he and John Mark are now reconciled, right? because here's what's, what's easy to happen. Man, that's beautiful that John Mark and Paul got reconciled. That is, that is so encouraging to my soul. Oh wait, I have to reconcile? Right? When, it, when it hits our life, we're like, ah, I don't know that I want to do that. And so he doesn't just say, listen, look at John Mark and I who have been reconciled after a decade or so. He then literally moves them into it immediately with Onesimus. Because, by the way, Onesimus is still standing there looking at the family that he once served, having run away of a, a crime punishable by death, holding a letter. And you can imagine that he is, he's, so Paul is asking for reconciliation for Onesimus. Can you imagine the excuses that Onesimus had when Paul's like, hey, so you've got to go back to Colossae. Whoa, whoa, Paul. Um, I, I would be of much better use here, right? Not a slave, right? Like, you know that God does, right? Like, you can imagine him thinking through and going, hey, what if I just ask for forgiveness? Like, we'll call it good, right? Um, I'm a better use here. Like, let's, let's move on and do more good. Are you sure I have to go back? What a need for Jesus did Onesimus have as he travels back to the place where he was enslaved, holding a letter, friends with Paul, and not sure how he would be received. Okay, so if they make me a slave again, okay God, I will work for your glory and not for the approval of which Paul's already hit on. I, I have my approval in you, whether Philemon gives it to me or not. Like the gospel here isn't like theoretical. Like Onesimus is walking back potentially into enslavement, trusting that Jesus is sufficient, that he's enough for every circumstance of his life whether good or ugly, whether hard, whether peaceful. He doesn't know. He needs Jesus. He needs to know that he's been seen, he's approved of, and that this life isn't the culmination of everything that the next life is. And that God will reward him for his faithfulness, even if he goes from being a teammate of Paul's to a slave in a forgotten town of waning significance. That he is seen and known and loved by the God of the universe calling them to reconciliation. Church, there's also for us this morning a warning in this ending. We see in verse 14, he mentions Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas is also mentioned in Philemon, um, again, as being a part of the team. And then some three to four years later, as Paul is writing towards the end of his life in 2 Timothy, one verse ahead of where he commends John uh, Mark. We see this. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, 
in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone on to Thessalonica. Tristan has gone to Galatia, Titus, Dalmatia. Luke alone is with Demas, at love with the present world, has departed and deserted Paul. We don't get a final story on Demas. The last thing that we get from him is that he has walked away from the faith. And he has left it, has departed it, and is, is showing that he was never actually one of us. He was never a part truly. He's, he's walked away. And yet here in Colossians 4, um, in, in Philemon, we see him as a faithful team member who appeared to belong. And it's being revealed that he wasn't. So we don't know the end. We don't know if he repented. But again, we see the pain and costly effect personally of relationships, right? That Paul is being betrayed here. That this man that he has served with for years could just walk away. Just walk away and desert him. And so the question for us, the warning for us, because remember in chapter 2 there were a couple of warnings to the church in Colossae. Um, the first, in verse 4 of chapter 2, he tells them, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He warns them about the false teachers. And then in verse 8, See to it that no one takes, takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Like He's already warned them of things. And for us, church, the warning this morning is that if Demas could fool Paul and not actually love Jesus and see him as sufficient, right? that we have to ask the question this morning, what is it that we love? Like, do we love Jesus? Or do we just love the things that Jesus seems to kind of provide us when we are like church and Jesus adjacent? Like as long as Jesus keeps like giving us the things that we think we want and we get approval and we get acceptance, right? Okay, I'm good. But it says that Demas was in love with the world. That Jesus wasn't sufficient. Church, for us this morning, listen, this is not a call to hate the world to love Jesus. It's a call to love the world through the eyes of Jesus. Right? That, that like Onesimus, that we could walk back into difficult relationships and circumstances wanting reconciliation. Because Jesus is enough whether we get what we want in this life or this world or not. That Jesus is sufficient. Paul will write in Ephesians 2 that that prior to Christ, we walked following the prince of the power of this world, right? Following Satan, right? Being in love with this world. And, it, and it's Jesus who opens our eyes and takes us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, right? To now give us eyes to see this actually isn't our home. The goal isn't to put down as deep of roots as possible. The goal isn't to um, accomplish everything and to have everything and then die. The goal is to see Jesus, right? That heavenly place where we're headed, and then on the way there, that we're pointing people to Him. That we're walking arm in arm, right? Living in this world, but not of this world, because Jesus is more. That we have God's eyes for the things around us. And so the warning then this morning is just this. Is Jesus sufficient for you? Do you love Him? Would the Spirit be so gracious this morning to reveal areas where we do and areas where we don't? That we could repent so that we would not be a demon who deserts in the last second.
And lastly, here's where we'll end this morning. Paul writes in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You can imagine Paul right with chains. Like, remember them. Pray for me. Grace be with you. What Paul is reminding the church and is reminding us this morning is this, is there is grace for every situation and circumstance. And Jesus' mercy is new every morning. And that He gives you the grace to face whatever it is that you're facing today. And those things that you fear in the future that you haven't yet faced, you don't have the grace needed yet for them, but you will have them when you face it. Do we trust that, that His grace is sufficient for every situation and circumstance? Paul doesn't want to be in prison, right? But while he's there, God is faithful and gracious. And he's like, I'm going to lead the guards to Jesus. I'm going to point them to Jesus. You're going to let me out? I'm going to keep planting churches. So church, if your circumstances this morning maybe are not literal, physical chains, but you feel chains emotionally, relationally, financially, spiritually, there's conflict, like God's grace is sufficient for you, whatever you're facing. Paul would say that he was the chief sinner. If you feel like you don't even know Jesus, there is grace for you in the midst of your sin. Right? John Mark sinned early and is reconciled later. Right? That when there was broken relationships, that God brought healing and reconciliation. This morning, if, it, if for you what it is is broken relationship and any sort of, right, this is family, this is spouse, this is friends, this is co-workers, this is children, that God, through His mercy and His might and His grace, can restore them. There's grace for every circumstance. So He ends it saying, listen, right, I want you to be reminded that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And that this is the Jesus we have access to. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the Jesus that we are here this morning to worship. And he is not theoretical. He is quite alive. And he is everything that we need. And it's why Paul will say then, Look at big Jesus and continue steadfast after Him despite your circumstances because there is grace for you. Let's pray.
Father, would you sink and anchor the message of Colossians into our heart? God, that you would not just be a thought or an idea for us, but that there would be relationship. That we would know that you have rescued us. That we would taste and see that you are good. And so we would walk in a manner worthy of you. Steadfast after you. Not to gain salvation, but because you've given it to us when we didn't deserve it. But God, because we want to know you and to walk with you and to please you. Father, would we be a people who would have barriers torn down between us. God, would we be a people where reconciliation is the norm and the expectation, even when it is painful? God, would we play the role both of Onesimus, humbling ourselves, going back to difficult situations? And God, would we play the role of Philemon, looking at the one who's come to us and offering grace? God, we likely will have to play both of those roles in our life. God, give us the grace to do that. God, help us to be reminded that there is mercy and grace in your presence in every circumstance. And Lord, would our chins be lifted to see you preeminent above all today. In Jesus' name, amen.